Good morning, New Hope. Great to be with you this morning. If you don't know me, if you're new here and you don't uh, know who I am, uh, then let me, let me introduce myself. I'm Gary Post. I'm the associate pastor here. And uh, Mark and Laura Lee are away for the weekend. So I'm going to be sharing with you today out of, uh, out of Luke 7, 36 through 50. And today's message is going to be all about uh, how people find God's grace and, and forgiveness. And, and, and also how we can be Uh, how we can extend, how you and I can extend God's grace and forgiveness to other people, broken people around us. I'm going to begin with a a modern-day story, because sometimes a story is the best way to explain uh, the best practice, or uh, uh, what a good one looks like, in other words. And and so I'm going to begin with a a, a story. And then uh, the story from Scripture, Luke 7. Uh, 36 through 50, the, the story of a broken woman, a, a, a woman who uh, comes to faith in Jesus Christ out of brokenness and, and repentance. And, and finally, I, I want to share another story. <clears throat> it's kind of a parallel story. It's a modern-day story of uh, the Luke 7 woman, her, her counterpart. And what I want to show you is uh, how grace and repentance and forgiveness happens in the same way today. Uh, that it did back in Luke 7 with Jesus. Now, I, uh, how many of you got my email earlier this week? The, the PG advisory? Yeah. Well, uh, all I want to say about that is that I'm, the video that I'm using is a five-minute video. There's nothing explicit in it in terms of language or images, but um, it does cover topics. It is by a modern-day Luke 7 woman. Um, and uh, she, she talks uh, about uh, her history and coming out of that history and that happened to be in the adult film industry, coming out of that history into a, a place of repentance and grace and forgiveness. So um, it, it is something that uh, will be powerful, I think, for you in, in terms of the lesson today. It, it uh, may be something that that uh, you're not ready to explain to uh, a younger person who's with you. If that's the case, I'd encourage you to, to just let them out during that, that uh, five-minute period uh, that the video takes place. And, and um, you have to decide that as a, as a parent. But that's, that's, the, uh, that's the PG warning with regard to that, that video. Let's go to God in prayer a minute, shall we? Dear Father, we know that, that nothing of eternal value will happen here today as a result of this message, and unless your Holy Spirit's power uh, releases your word in, in people's hearts and penetrates our hearts with the truth of your word. And, and so we, we pray that you would minister to us today, that you'd pour out your spirit on, on me as your vessel here today, and, and also on each one here, that, uh, that you'd use your word to, to further transform us into the image of Jesus Christ and to, to teach us what you have for us today. And we ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Garrett Kell was a young college student at Virginia Tech. He never intended to become a Christian. As he said, I loved my sin. I loved my life. I had a very hard heart. My friend Dave was the 17th person to have some sort of gospel conversation with me. I didn't want Jesus. But for some reason, he wanted me. On Halloween night, Garrett threw a party in his apartment at Virginia Tech. 
He, he writes, I was 20 years old and was in the wildest season of my life. I had three girl roommates, a live-in girlfriend, and I spent most of my spare time drinking, smoking weed, and doing lines of cocaine. Because the party was going to be so unforgettable, I invited an old friend from high school down for the weekend. Dave and I had played hoops and partied together over the years, so I was excited to see him. But when, I, when, I, when he arrived, I showed him the, the drugs and the booze, and I filled him in on the plan for the party that evening. But he didn't respond as I expected he would. He sat down on the bed, looked in, at me in the eye, and, and told me he didn't do those things anymore. He said he'd become a Christian, that he loved Jesus now, and the reason he came to the party was to tell me that Jesus loved me too. I laughed him off. For the rest of the night, Dave stayed at the party with people going crazy all around him. Other friends came up and asked me what, I, what was up with my buddy. And when I told them he was a Christian, we'd all sneer and say, oh, poor guy, like he had some disease or something. But as the night went on, my heart was uneasy. As I looked at Dave, I saw he had a peace that no drink or no high could give him. After the party and for the next several days, I spoke with Dave about Jesus and about the gospel. He gave me some scriptures to read, and he tried to answer my questions, and he endured my mocking. We spoke on the phone several times and exchanged emails. I called him Mr. Religious, and I cautioned him about getting too weird on me. I told Dave that God and I had an understanding, and that I didn't think God was going to send me to hell just for having a good time. Even though I ridiculed him, I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable because of what Dave had shared with me about God. Finally, I locked myself in my room and I said, Okay, God, if you're for real, show me something. About that time, I, I noticed the corner of a Bible sticking out from under my bed where I had stuffed it. It was the Bible my parents gave me when I went off to college. I sat at my desk and played Bible roulette. Do you know how to play that? Put your Bible on edge, let it fall open, and whatever you read there is your direction for the day. Yeah. Not recommended. Don't try this at home. <laughs> the Bible opened open to Ezekiel 18 where I read, The person who sins is the one who will die. But if wicked people turn away from their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die. All their past sins will be forgotten and they will live. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the Sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die? I don't want you to die, says the Sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. That freaked me out. So I closed the Bible and said, God, let's try this again. I opened the Bible again, and this time it fell open to Romans 2.4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that, this ki that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That really freaked me out. <laughs> a, a few weeks later, I was at home on Christmas break, and I was doing a drug called ecstasy. Sometime after midnight, I became strangely sober. I felt an overwhelming burden to call Dave. So at 2 a.m., Dave came up to my house carrying his Bible with tears rolling down his cheeks. We sat down and I told him I needed to know more about God. He, he asked me if I knew what he was doing when I called him. 
he went on to tell me that when I called him, he was doing the same thing he'd been doing every night since he left Virginia Tech. He was on his knees praying for me. Over the next few days and weeks, I continued to read the Bible and have conversations with Dave. He told me that God made me to love and and worship him. He explained that the guilt I was feeling was God showing me that I was in rebellion against him and was on my way to hell. He explained that Jesus died for sinners like me and then rose from the dead to extend mercy to me if I would turn from my sins and believe in Jesus. He told me that Jesus would forgive all my sins, change my life, and make me his forever. I'm not sure if it was that night or in the weeks that followed, but God saved my soul. I began reading the Bible, and it was no longer a book of old stories, but now it was like a spotlight that searched my soul and showed me the depths of my sin and the even greater depths of God's love for me in Jesus. My friend Dave made a stand for me that night at Virginia Tech. God used him to get a message to me that eternally altered my life. Now every Halloween night, I call Dave and thank him for the stand. God used Dave's stand to save my soul and my life from utter destruction. Notice here, friends, that it, it took one friend who was willing to make a stand to make an eternal difference in his friend's life. The verse that I was reminded of when I read that story for the first time was, uh, was James 5.20, which says, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, Jesus set the example for how we're to extend grace. He, he was the master at it. And he did, that, uh, he did that in Luke 7. And I'd like to take a look at that story right now. Luke 7, uh, 36 through 50. And uh, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 864 in, in the Pew Bible. Luke 7, beginning at thir- uh, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. 
but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a great story, huh? Great story of grace and, uh, and mercy. Um, one of the things that we should know about this passage is that this is a unique account in the Gospels. There are some other passages that have uh, other women, particularly uh, Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, who anoints Jesus' feet. Uh, but that is a different time in his ministry. It's at a different place, and it's a different woman. Luke doesn't tell us who this woman is. We never find that out. And she's anonymous, and perhaps by design. Um, but what we do find out is that uh, she's not, we know she's not Mary Magdalene, who is mentioned in the, the next chapter, another of Jesus' associates. And she's described simply as a, as a woman of the city, uh, which is a euphemism. She's also described as a sinner a couple different times in this passage. And in the uh, NASB version, uh, it's rendered as an immoral woman. And uh, those are all euphemisms that the translators uh, used uh, to sugarcoat uh, what she did for a living. She was a prostitute, and, and that was how she made her living in that city, and everyone knew that. Now, this was, uh, Simon invited Jesus to lunch. This was at Simon's home. Simon was a Pharisee, and uh, this was a banquet, and, and so that would have been uh, conducted in a particular way, but I, I want to fill, fill in the blanks for you on who Pharisees were. They were kind of the religious upper crust in Jewish culture at the time. And uh, here is an English Standard Version text note on Pharisees that I thought would be useful. And it says, Pharisees are a relatively small but highly influential group of Jews who emphasize meticulous observance of God's law. And the way that they understood God's law was not only what's in the Old Testament that you and I can read in Leviticus, for example, uh, but also all the tradition that they had layered on that, that they had layered over it, uh, traditions of men that, that, they, uh, that they added to the law that made it that much more difficult to obey. Uh, and they thought of those things as the means by which one attains righteousness before God and the means by which one retains his favor. In other words, uh, they thought that that uh, pleasing God was a do-it-yourself project and that you had to obey uh, all of these regulations and, and that was what uh, God wanted in order to uh, obtain right standing with him. So Simon would have been one of the most influential uh, religious leaders of the day as a Pharisee. Highly educated, would have probably memorized the whole Old Testament uh, scripture, at least the first five books of the Bible. And... Uh, and also meticulously paid meticulous attention to the, uh, the, the ritual requirements of the law. Uh, Jesus, uh, in fact, criticized them for tithe, not criticized them for uh, tithing, but they tithed uh, minute quantities of spices, for example, and yet missed the bigger picture, and Jesus criticized them for that. He thought of himself as a, as a righteous man, but what we'll see is that uh, he was a religious man and that there's a tremendous difference. Here's the setting. A banquet was an, an open event 
at, uh, at a home. The, the homes were kind of an open architecture in that day. And so the, uh, the important people of the day would gather for a banquet around a low table. And uh, they would uh, recline on cushions and would generally prop themselves up on one elbow, eat with the other hand while they were conversing among themselves. What was interesting about that was that uh, people from the town could also come in and, and listen in. So somebody could, could just wander in and kind of uh, stand behind the, the official guests and just listen to what was happening there, listen to what the important people had to say. And that's what happened in this case. So enter the, the woman of the city. Obviously, uh, uh, she wasn't an invited guest. Um, but uh, she showed up. She heard Jesus was here. Perhaps she was attracted by uh, all of the miracles that you read about previously in chapter 7 and the previous chapter. Uh, perhaps she heard about those things and, and came to see Jesus. Now, uh, Pastor Mark often says, what you believe about God determines what you do. Well, let's look at what she did and then try to figure out, work that backwards, try to figure out what it was that she believed about Jesus. Uh, what, did she, what, actions, what actions did she take toward Jesus that you see in the text here? This is the audience participation portion. I'm sorry? She, she kissed his feet. Yes, she kissed his feet. What else do you see? She probably came up behind him because the guests were reclining and so their feet would have been splayed out almost like spokes from a wheel. So she came up behind him and, and what else did she do? Poured oil or poured ointment. That valuable, that alabaster, alabaster flask was a one-time use. You'd break the neck off it, you'd pour out the precious ointment from it and, and uh, that's what she anointed his, his feet with. What else did she do? Wiped it with her hair. Yeah, very unusual. We'll talk more about that in just a second. What, what else did she do? I'm sorry? Poured, poured perfume on, on his feet, yes. Uh, wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, poured perfume on him, and kissed his, kissed his feet. Keep in mind now, here's the setting. Everybody in town knew who she was, knew what she did for a living. And she was not welcome there. In fact, you can just imagine that when she came, she could feel the condemnation that was heavy in the air toward her because she was reviled by the group of people. She was coming right into the, the, uh, a group of the highest religious leaders in, in town. And it, it also took great courage for her to unbind her hair in that group of men in particular because uh, that would have been seen as an act that was immodest, and in fact, something only an immoral woman would do, would unbind her hair in, in front of a group of men uh, like that. So to, to honor Jesus by, by um, unbinding her hair and wiping his feet with her hair would have been seen as the ultimate act of humility and, uh, and subservience and, and servanthood. Based on her actions there, who would you say she believed that Jesus was? I'm sorry? God. Yeah, she, she believed uh, that he was the son of God. And, and what else did she believe about him? A, a savior. Uh, she saw him as the only one who could save her. He was her last hope. She was as, as low as, as she can go. 
what do her actions uh, reveal about the condition of her heart? I'm sorry, Hazel? Okay, she was open to Jesus. What else do you see? She, she could feel forgiveness. Yeah, she could feel that grace. And so, so she knew that Jesus would forgive her. Uh, yeah, and also she just came with a load of shame and guilt. You can only imagine uh, the, the, the shame and the guilt and the remorse that she felt. In fact, um, she, it says uh, she, was, she was weeping, but that doesn't fully describe what she was doing. The, the Greek connotation for that word weeping is that she was wailing. She was sobbing uncontrollably when she came to Jesus. You see, she, she knew she had no righteousness of her own. She, she didn't have a leg to stand on. She had nothing to offer Jesus that would commend her to him. Uh, she just came in her brokenness and, and threw him, her, herself at his feet. And, and in fact, uh, the, the act that she did, <clears throat> uh, the uh, throwing herself at his feet, uh, grabbing his ankles, wiping her feet, his feet with her, her hair, that, that would have been the action of a slave. Uh, who was so subservient that she was appealing to her master perhaps for her life, uh, but making an appeal to her master in that ultimate act of subservience, that's the way this woman came to Jesus. Now on the other hand, we have, uh, in contrast, we have Simon. And uh, Simon obviously knew who the woman was. He was greatly offended by her presence there uh, because uh, uh, her um, status as a, as a sinner, as an immoral woman, what impact would that have had on him and his friends as a Pharisee? What would they have had to do as a consequence? Does anybody know? I'm sorry? They would have to cleanse themselves. They would be ceremonial, ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. They would have been defiled ceremonially under, under Jewish law, and they would have had to, to do the ceremonial cleansing thing to be, to be restored again. So you, so you see, um, her, her entrance was not welcome at all. In fact, uh, she, he, he concluded to himself, that is Simon, <clears throat> that Jesus must not be a prophet after all because if he had been, he would have known who was touching him and he wouldn't have allowed it. And ironically, uh, Jesus proved himself a prophet because he read Simon's thoughts. You notice that Simon didn't exactly say that. All he did was think that and Jesus knew what he thought. Uh, how unnerving would that be to have lunch with somebody who could read your every thought? Huh? Yeah, well, God can do that with each one of us, certainly. And, and Jesus did it in this case. And, and then he took Simon to school. You see, Jesus used that, that lesson to expose what was in their hearts. Simon's faith was in what? If the woman's faith was in Jesus as her Savior, what was Simon's faith in? The law? And what else? <clears throat> I'm sorry? Himself, yeah. Uh, uh, righteousness was a do-it-yourself project for Simon. Uh, he, thought, he thought that if he followed the law meticulously, he, he could please God. And, and so, you see, he didn't need Jesus' righteousness uh, because he already had his own. And, and that's the way he, he approached Christ. So what do, what do Simon's actions tell us about who he thought Jesus was? Just an ordinary person, yeah. Maybe even a fraud, right? Yeah. 
Uh, Simon didn't think Jesus was anybody special. So uh, Jesus said that that's an, an evidence of, of what's going on in each heart. And so he used that lesson uh, about the two debtors to, to expose what was going on in the heart. He said, Simon, I've got a story for you. And uh, he, he said, uh, th- there was a moneylender and two debtors, and one owed 50 denarii, which would have been about two months' wages. One owned 500 denarii, which would have been 20 months' wages. Who loved him more? And actually, the, the word loved there means uh, who was more grateful. <clears throat> there, wasn't actually a, there wasn't actually a word in Aramaic that Jesus spoke for being grateful, for being thankful. And so it's translated here as who loved him more. But you can read it as who was more grateful. And, and Simon answered correctly, the, the one for whom he uh, forgave the larger debt was, was more grateful. And Jesus used that lesson to show what was going on in, in each heart, to expose each heart attitude. He, he compared what Simon had done for him versus the woman. Simon hadn't, hadn't even offered uh, Jesus the basic courtesies that an honored guest might have expected in that day and age, in, in a Jewish household, when he was invited for a banquet. He, he said... Uh, Simon, you offered me no kiss for my cheek, no water for my feet, no oil for my head. But he said, the woman met, uh, wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, kissed my feet, anointed them with ointment. And, and Jesus' point was that, this is the bottom line, Jesus' point was that uh, it wasn't so much about what Simon and the woman did or didn't do, but rather that what they did or didn't do reflected the condition of their heart. You see? Jesus didn't forgive the woman because she anointed his feet. She didn't forgive the, he didn't forgive the woman because, even because he lo- she loved him more than Simon did. Jesus forgave uh, the woman for another reason, and her uh, service and her love for Jesus were a reflection of the forgiveness she received and not the reason for it. We can't do anything to to get God's forgiveness or to obtain God's grace in our own effort. Now, Simon, on the other hand, he couldn't see the condition of his own heart. And, and he was blinded by his own self-righteousness, couldn't see the need for Jesus to save him. Simon was on the do-it-yourself plan. He came with his resume of uh, religious activities and uh, all his accomplishments in the Jewish faith, his religiosity, and he said, God... Uh, take my resume here. Aren't you happy to have me on your team? And what Jesus said was, none of that matters. What, what matters is your, your heart attitude. And so the woman came in repentance and uh, brokenness and faith, and Jesus looked into her heart, and he identified something that saved her. What was that? The one thing that saved her? Her faith, exactly. Uh, her, her faith saved her. And according to, to Jesus, he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So faith equals trust and, and confidence in God to do what he says he will do. Trust and confidence in God to do what he says he will do. And that is, that is faith. Now imagine her overwhelming joy and gratitude uh, when she experienced that forgiveness and, and, and peace. Uh, the, the weight that was lifted from her just a moment before She'd felt this tremendous shame and remorse and condemnation from the people around her. From Jesus, she felt only love and grace and forgiveness. 
And uh, King David in Psalm 51, the, the great psalm of uh, brokenness and repentance, uh, tells us that's how God wants us to come. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So Jesus' response to the woman when she came to him in brokenness and repentance was, your faith has saved you, go in peace. The Apostle Paul tells the same thing in, in Romans 3.28. He says, for we hold that one is justified, that is declared not guilty forever. One is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Well, it still happens today. And, and I'd like to share with you a parallel story um, about a Luke 7 woman in our own time. Her name is Chrissy Moran. And um, she came out of a, a life in the adult film industry. Um, she'll tell you a little bit about her early life and what led her there. And then uh, also watch for, watch for uh, the, the person that intervened in her life and how that happened. And, and also how she found uh, grace and forgiveness when she cried out to God. I had a woman approach me last night after the service and say, Gary, uh, the story of those two women is my story. And, uh, and I had an abortion as well. And I was consumed by uh, guilt and depression until uh, somebody introduced me to my Savior, Jesus Christ. And it changed the whole trajectory of my life, my family's life, and my kids' and my grandkids' life for, for generations. Uh, but he said I, I, she said, I was there too. And, uh, and God extended his grace to me when I didn't think that I was, I was worthy of it. Well, what can we learn from the, the stories of these two women? First of all, uh, I, I wondered uh, when I first saw that video, I wondered uh, how Chrissy Moran felt when she read Luke 7 and saw that parallel story. I, I wondered um, what Chrissy Moran and the Luke 7 woman will have to say to each other in heaven when they compare stories of God's grace and, and redemption. But what can we learn? Well, maybe the first thing is that nobody's beyond the reach of God's grace. No one, no matter what you've done, is beyond the reach of God's grace. You know, as Jesus said in verse 47, her sins, which are many. Luke didn't have to include that. That's included for a reason. He, he wanted to let us know that, that she was no amateur, that, that she sinned a lot, and that Jesus knew that. He knew everything that she had ever done, and, and yet he loved her with a love that was just so big that it was incomprehensible, and he offered her forgiveness and, and grace. And, and he loves us in the same way. Uh, you know, all, all of us uh, are, are broken people, and we all carry around with us the, the baggage and the scars of our past lives. God knows about all of that, and, and he forgives us for it. Sometimes people have the impression that they, they need to rise to a certain level of holiness before they come to church. They need to somehow clean themselves up a little bit before God will accept them. What this story teaches us is, is that that's not true, that, uh, that God meets us right where we are. And he accepts us just as, as we are in, in all our brokenness. Uh, the church is not a, a country club for holy people. It, it is an ER for broken people. 
And we're, we're all broken people. We all come with empty hands. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we'd cleaned ourselves up. While we were still sinners, God forgave us. He died for us. Secondly, we learn that the brokenness and repentance and faith come before grace and forgiveness. Sometimes uh, we get things backwards, but to repent means to, to turn away from the sinful things we're doing, and too often we gloss over that. We emphasize the love of God and get people to pray the prayer and believe that they're followers of Jesus Christ uh, when they don't completely understand what discipleship is all about and what the need for repentance is. We remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but we forget sometimes Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, which is a sin's penalty, is, is death. Uh, Romans 2.4 tells us, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, God's kindness, is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance comes before grace and forgiveness. And then thirdly, God's grace is a free gift. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. This is the, the, the huge difference, folks, between Christianity and every other world religion. Every other world religion is, is one scheme or another uh, to live in a way that, that pleases a divine being. That, to make our own way, in other words. It's a, a works-based form of righteousness to ingratiate ourselves with some kind of a, a divine being. Christianity, on the other hand, is all about grace. That's what makes it distinctive. God's grace is a, is a free gift. Titus 3, 5 through 7 says, He saved us, get this, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You know, our, our human tendency is always to want to turn grace into a do-it-yourself project. To want to turn forgiveness into a do-it-yourself project. R.C. Sproul says, says this about that. Perhaps the most difficult task for us is to uh, for us to perform is to rely on God's grace and God's grace alone for our salvation. It is difficult for our pride to rest on grace. Grace is for other people, for beggars. We don't want to live in a heavenly welfare system. We want to earn our way, earn our own way and atone for our own sins. We like to think that we will go to heaven because we, we deserve to be there. But Paul says, on, on the contrary, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that, that nobody can boast. Well, fourth, uh, we must represent Jesus Christ to extend God's grace to broken people in our world of relationships. Have you thought about it? Every time... Someone cries out to God in despair. Lord, if you're real, I need to know. That's what Garrett Kell said. That's what uh, Chrissy Moran said. Hey, God, if you're real, I need to know. Reveal yourself to me. Every time someone prays that, uh, God sends somebody 
He sent somebody like you and me. He positioned somebody like you and me to extend his message of grace and redemption, and we need to be ready to share that message. The Apostle Peter says to, this, uh, says to us, uh, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So be ready to, to give an answer. You see, God's promise is that when we cry out to him, uh, we'll find him. A- anybody, no matter where you are in life. He says in, uh, in Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The Luke 7 woman did that. Chrissy Moran did that. Garrett Kell did that. Uh, but then when that happens, somebody has to step up and say, do you believe in God? Or something similar to that. Somebody has to make the connection, put themselves in the position that, to talk to them about the Savior. And, and Paul tells us that that's our job description. He says we're ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. You see, God appeals to the lost and brokenhearted through you and me now because Jesus isn't here anymore. And it isn't something magical that happens. You and I have to speak up. As though God were making his appeal through us, here's the message. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In other words, make things right with God. God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, uh, question, what are some everyday ways that we can extend God's grace, that we can be conduits of grace uh, to people in our world? Well, first of all, we, we can pray. I usually say that uh, you can't argue somebody into the kingdom, but you can pray them into the kingdom. God will release his spirit into that person's world and he'll penetrate their heart and prepare them to hear the gospel. Uh, so you can pray them into the kingdom. You can act in, in kindness towards someone else. Uh, a tangible expression of the love of, of Christ is powerful. A card, a kind word, an encouragement. Sometimes putting your, your hand on somebody's shoulder and just praying with them about something that they're, they're going through. Uh, all of that. Let, let me ask you a hard question. If another Chrissy Moran showed up at our church and we knew who she was and we knew what she did, would she get a reception more like she got from Jesus or would she get a reception more like she got from Simon? I have to tell you, folks, there's a lot of Simon in me. There's a lot of Simon in me. And I, it makes me uncomfortable around broken people. Maybe you can relate to this. But their lives are often messed up. Sometimes their marriages are messed up. They're, they're addicted to something or another. Their finances are, are messed up. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't know how to behave in church. Sometimes they don't know how to dress. Sometimes they use language that, that doesn't work real well in church. And, you know, they're broken people. And just when I start thinking like that, when I start thinking like Simon, God reminds me, Gary, that's how I see you. That's how I see you. You're messed up too, Gary. That's why you needed a Savior, remember? Here's another question. Do we have an obligation to extend grace to those people who are not yet here? If we are indeed surrounded by tens of thousands of people in this community and we have room for 225 people here, if God intends to use this church to draw 
uh, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people to himself over the next decade. Do we have an obligation to extend grace to people by making space for them in a practical way? That, that's a question that we're going to have to answer together over the next several weeks. Another way to extend God's grace is through friendship. Often God works through established relationships. You are not friends and you don't have the network of relationships that you have by accident. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is by design. God guides people into your orbit so that you can make a connection with them for eternal purposes. And, and God will make that, that happen. But very often, uh, the friendship is the reason you will have standing and credibility to speak into that other person's life. Like David and Garrett, remember? Uh, his buddy, his longtime buddy showed up. Nobody else would have had the standing to speak into his life, but David did. He took a stand and it made an eternal difference in Garrett's life. So you have standing to speak into the lives of those in relationship with you. Uh, another way is to offer help and encouragement in a crisis. Very often, uh, C.S. Lewis says that God's that uh, pain, that is hardship in our lives, is God's megaphone to get our attention. Pain, pain gets our attention, and very often you find that, that pain in a person's life, hardship and difficulty in a person's life, opens a person up to eternal things, opens a person up to the uh, gospel and, and to thinking about God. And, and that's your signal that, the, the, that the, the coach is putting you into the game. And, and uh, we need to be ready to to get into the game and to make a difference there uh, for eternity. To offer prayer, wisdom, comfort, direction, encouragement. Uh, we can use God's word, use scripture strategically to address life issues and invite them to, to study with you perhaps or speak God's truth into their lives. When I meet somebody who's having a, a difficulty in their marriage, you know, I'll, I'll go to Ephesians 5 and I'll talk about the husband's need to, to, to live sacrificially with his wife. Uh, I'll talk about First uh, Peter 3, 7. And, and I'll say, uh, we're told we need to live in an understanding way with our wives. You see, you, you, can speak, you can use Scripture to speak truth into people's lives in areas where they're having difficulty. And then finally, you can lead them to Christ. At, at some point in everyone's life when they cry out to God, somebody has to step up to them and say, do you believe in God? You have to make that spiritual connection and, and as ambassadors, as representatives of Christ, uh, we have to ask simple questions like that. Has there, one of my favorites is, has there ever been a time when you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior and, and you've accepted his forgiveness? Very often the answer is no. Or, or I'll ask, uh, has, ever, has anyone ever explained to you God's, God's plan to save us and offer us forgiveness? Very often they'll say no. And, and if they say no, I, I say, well, would you mind if I did that? I've never had anyone say, no, I don't want you to do that. Usually they'll say, yeah, I'd really like to know. I've been, I've been waiting for someone to share that with me. Would you please share that with me? And, and, and so I do. And, and that's when I usually uh, pull out something like this that you have in your bulletins today. It's, it's a tool. This is not the only way to present the gospel, but it's a simple way to do it. It's a simple way to understand the gospel, walk people through it, have them read verse by verse, and just talk them through a presentation of the, of the gospel. Yes, this is how you receive grace and forgiveness from our Savior, Jesus Christ. At the end, there's a place for them to pray, and, and you can invite them to pray. You can help them pray with you to receive Jesus Christ and, 
and come to that place of grace and forgiveness. You don't have to be a pastor to do this stuff uh, because God will empower you uh, to do it and, uh, and to bring a, another person into the, into the kingdom. Rely on God's power. Ask His Holy Spirit to fill you. Uh, offering, extending grace and forgiveness to people is not a do-it-yourself project. It's something we do in, in the Spirit. God will reveal to you those divine appointments where He wants you to make those connections. Spend time in the Word and, and, the prayer, and in prayer daily so that, that you're a sharp instrument, so that God can use you. So you recognize the signal when the coach puts you in, you see, and you're to interact with another person. In closing, our friend Garrett Kell who is now a pastor in Texas, offers this uh, word to you. He says, as you hear my story, I want to encourage you to remember that God's grace is stronger than the hardest heart. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, the, the righteous shall live by faith. Who is the most unlikely person, he asked us, who is the most unlikely person you know to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Take a moment to think. Do you have a name in your mind? Jesus can save them. And you might just be the person that he uses to get the gospel to them. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For rebels like you and rebels like me, make a stand for Christ and trust him to use it for his glory. That stand may just save a soul for eternity. If you're at that place today, friend, uh, where uh, you are at that place of brokenness, you're at the end of yourself, and you desire to experience God's grace and forgiveness, if you've never met Jesus Christ as your Savior, then come down here afterwards and, and talk with me. And... Uh, and, and I'll introduce you to your Savior. And, uh, and you can experience the same grace and forgiveness that Garrett and, uh, and, and Chrissy and the Luke 7 woman did. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for your great plan to save us. And uh, Lord, you, you loved us when we were sinners before we knew we needed your forgiveness. And, and yet you, uh, you, made a, you made a way for us. You offer us your grace and uh, your forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you'd empower us to, uh, to be your ambassadors, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, and to extend your grace and your forgiveness to the people that you put into, into our network of relationships. We, we pray all this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.